Welcome to The Conduit, a platform where we try to bring important ideas to the modern world. Our focal points are rationality, morality, and progress. My name is Lyndon. I work in mental health case management. I study artificial intelligence, and you can find my writing at Therefore Think. I'm Josh. I work in government. I volunteer at a drug reform organization, and I'm interested in effective altruism. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. And we are on. We are on this warm, muggy, exciting day that is today. Yeah, lots lots ahead today for the young boys, the young men. It's exciting stuff. Yeah. So, let's put this conversation in context. Last night we recorded the Dave episode. Mm-hmm. So, listeners will be hearing this a week apart, most likely thereabouts but yeah that occurred last night and it was quite a nice evening just one of those things that you don't don't uh or like you you know you underappreciate prior to sort of lockdowns and covid and those kinds of things Mm. but just yeah having dinner with three mates is yeah a really nice thing having conversation having laughs it's been a long time since we'd seen dave yeah we speak a lot of a lot of shit about him on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, no, it was really nice to catch up with Dave and get some of his wisdoms and laughs. Um, hopefully, I, yeah, hopefully we actually have listeners at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so PSA, we should probably do. So, yeah, because I guess this will be, I think this will be coming out um, just after Christmas or whatever, the Monday after Christmas, I suppose. The Dave episode, I guess, will be just before Christmas, I think. And, um, yeah, so hopefully listeners appreciated Dave <laughs> and understood his point of view. And, uh, but more importantly, just like didn't get, um, maybe like didn't get too caught up in some of the more surface level stuff. Uh, just with regards to like, you know, his language, <laughs> which again, like not that swearing is like necessarily bad or anything. We obviously swear, but I mean, I guess the point of trying to get across is like the, there was a lot of substance in in Dave, and that's what we we that's why we wanted to have him on and try and highlight that in him. And it, he obviously is quite a modest person, so yeah, we haven't listened to the episode back yet, uh, you know, at the time of recording. But I'm quite excited about it. Like you mentioned that this morning as well, yeah. that you're keen to listen to it back. I I think it went quite well. Like I enjoyed myself regardless. Um, but yeah, as you said, like there are some things about Dave where someone, if they were coming at it with that pessimistic kind of view or lens, like, you know, could point fingers. But yeah, it's it's funny. Like when you do actually know Dave, you know, there's like hmm. nothing malicious about him or sort of like whatever, yeah. you know, he appears to be. He's not that. And that's, I think, one yeah. of the coolest things about him. It's the old... Uh don't know what one might call it um maybe a not a caricature but maybe a um archetype i guess we could call it of just the the really nice bikey you know just the classic not judging book by its cover but um there's what i was thinking of this morning is actually there's a comedian um do you know Chris Stefano? Have you ever seen him? No. <laughs> anyway, it's comedian Chris Stefano, and his dad is like quite this old school, um, 
like literally a gangster was in prison and all that sort of stuff and just very rough around the edges and rough on the surface and at first glance would seem maybe like not a very nice person um, just due to specifically due to like the language he used and things like that um, but then when there was I think Hurricane Katrina or some of the hurricanes over in the States he was actually just like actively going out and taking in families for weeks at a time um, I guess that's a parallel that came to mind with Devo of just like and with a lot of people yeah like there might be a lot of on the surface level things that you might jump to conclusions with um, but yeah I don't think it's any surprise at this point that I'm a bit more of a say like consequentialist person uh, where I see more value in judging people or just taking people for what their outcomes are and what they actually do with their behaviors rather than their words or how they look and things like that yeah i completely agree i think yeah maybe this will be the we don't need to bang on this about too much but that dave yeah is that kind of person where again someone might be able to like oh that's kind of offensive what he says there or like <laughs> you shouldn't use those words but when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove, Dave would bend over backwards to help anyone in need, like, and especially us, you know, like I feel confident in saying that someone he has like a close relationship with. Yeah. Like I, I know I could count on Dave and lots of people could. And at the end of the day, like you said, that is way more consequential than just being, you know, a little careful about your language and being really PC. Yeah. So, yeah, good good conversation. I, I hope it listens well. Yeah, definitely. Um, although, yeah, I know we just talked about like hedging and stuff <laughs> 10 minutes ago, but I guess I am... So, like, given where my baseline is, which is trending heavily towards outcomes and consequences, I see it perhaps as a bit of a weakness where I don't capture some of the value in symbolism and in some of that more PC sort of stuff that's around. Um but yeah, I think, I don't know, what, what about this? Like the value things are is just largely based on what your baseline is anyway. So like someone on the other end of the spectrum, uh, again, it's probably, it's probably a bit of a detriment to be like valuing those things a lot more. Does that make sense? Mm, I don't quite understand what you mean, sorry. I just mean like due to my baseline being heavily consequentialist mm. and really not appreciating um, symbolism and maybe like the language stuff a little bit or as much as I should perhaps, um, then maybe it's like I ought to value it a little bit more because I'm missing a lot of the value there. Yeah. So are you kind of going back to the point that maybe I was trying to make a week or two ago about you know, like the things that you dismiss probably yeah. contain most of the the unobtained value. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, ov- obviously the things that you are, you have some kind of affinity towards or, you know, like they fit your view of the world. You've, for the most part, captured the majority of the value yeah. from those things. Yeah. And it specifically, I was trying to make the point in regards to cartoons for you. Mm, yes. Like in... You know, whatever you're trying to do, you know, really hard to define whatever that is. You know, see the world clearly, think 
you know, think with some clarity regarding human, social, economic, political affairs. Like, mm. I do think you are, yeah, leaving large swaths of value on the table by not delving into some of the, like, very satirical or, or mm. clever cartoons. Right. Um, and, yeah, that's just one example of, I think, the phenomenon that you're speaking about here yeah. where whatever you're not paying attention to probably contains the majority of the value that yeah. you're not capturing. Yeah, no, definitely. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, no, that sounds good. Cool. So, what have you been reading this week? Even though we did books, episodes, and <laughs> recent <laughs> history. It's really, it's, uh, or like, what's the, what's the week brought? Let's start there then. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned to you, this week of work has been quite nice. Um, I... Work lo- workload has felt a lot more manageable this week. And, um, yeah, I got some, like, say, good feedback from my team leaders and stuff. So that was quite reassuring because I would say I'm pretty, like, an anxious person in in a work sense. Like, I'm all, no, like, no matter what position I'm in, I think this is true, no matter what position I'm in, I'm basically across the board, like, concerned that I will underperform. Um, and you know, like Davo spoke about, like that can be a detriment, but I guess you can also use that to your advantage. Yeah. You've definitely, at least in the you know time that I've known you and, you know, we worked together for a number of years, you've always stayed busy. Like you just very mm. proactive and sort of like just taking on tasks, doing them, executing next one. Like, yeah. 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 So I think so. Yeah. Are you learning to live with that a little bit more channel it or you're saying like that just got the better of you in recent times um i'm saying that it sometimes isn't the best mode of being to occupy but it's really nice when it pays off and it like evidently that payoff day came this week as that thing i shared with you um so yeah it's really nice to to be to show that 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 pays off because yeah i the product of that anxiety is just me like wanting to produce and create good work. And I guess just trying to channel it and trying to temper it a little bit to make sure it's not like debilitating anxiety. Um, I, th- I think I've gotten it to the level where it's like, okay, I just want, I really just want to make sure I'm doing good enough work and that I'm happy with it. And I kind of don't let it pass. Um, don't let it, um, get into any other areas of my day hopefully um do you think that possibly while you know some of let's say your improvement in this area could be a product of you know you maturing and and learning to temper that somewhat but do you think some aspect of that improvement could be explained by your move from the private sector to mm. like more of, you know, public service kind of role. Yeah, yeah. Because like, and we often take this from the, like the joking sort of, you know, the public service is extremely bureaucratic, slow, lazy. But what I'm probably getting at is, <clears throat> sorry, um, the flip side of that coin is that the private sector is like enough is never enough. Yep. Because there's always a you know a margin that could be improved or a bottom line that could be improved. Yeah, you know the business owner, the CEO, or whatever, like they can get richer quicker mm. if you do more. 
So yeah. do you think that exacerbated that tendency of yours previously? Definitely. Um, exactly like you mentioned, because they, especially in the fitness industry, they try and bleed you dry as an employee. And uh, I definitely, I don't know what you'd call it, burnout, but there was a couple of stages there where I was like really, let's just call it burnout, like quite burnt out. Like I remember I hadn't, so we're starting at 5 a.m., um, and I hadn't slept in my whole time working at this joint um, in Tullamarine. And I, yeah, and then it all sort of just came crashing down and I like slept in like three times in a week. I was like, oh, that's that's the signal. <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely exacerbated in that industry when they just, and again, that's like, a, you know, I guess we talk a bit about capitalism and profits and stuff and that can be some of the downsides of, just that more, more, more um, philosophy. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I remember getting into the fitness industry and there was a lot of talk about the the average tenure of the personal trainer being six months and yeah. a lot of you know companies and organizations lay claim to trying to improve on those metrics. But yeah, the, in, the incentives are quite perverse yeah. and... Um, I think there are, there are some really great companies doing really good things. Yeah. So I wouldn't suggest that um, it's completely nihilistic. But yeah, as, as you know, like words are cheap. Lots of, lots of people mm. say lots of things, but mm. at the end of the day, typically care less about you than like how their bank account is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting, like you mentioned say some of the downsides of the public service and the lack of incentives. Um, but yeah, there's obviously a lot of positives that come with it just in terms of the stability. Um, and I guess with the stability might come a feeling of like psychological safety because yeah, you like one thing with the public service that I guess some people know is that once you get, a permanent role it's like actually quite hard to get out or it's actually quite hard to get fired which is both a good and a bad thing because like you know obviously you want to get rid of people that aren't productive and you know you only want the best people um but i guess also at the same time like yeah i don't know there it's it's nice to feel stable and that like not every single day like it's just from an experience and from an experiential point of view like not every single day is where like your job is on the line because obviously feelings and like the year can be quite just like cyclical and ups and downs as the year goes by and yeah i don't know this perhaps a bit of a romantic view but like i don't know how realistic it is just to be expecting someone to have like their maximum output for the whole year yeah it's a there's a few things that I think about here. I do think that while the public and private sectors both succumb to sort of versions of the planning fallacy of sort of just like projecting mm. optimal um, circumstances into the future and just sort of like linearly extrapolating, uh, I do think they, yeah, they sort of succumb to it in different ways. Like the public, public sector being very, or like heavily criticised for just like delayed delivery on projects, overrun margins, like those mm. kinds of things. But 
where the private sector probably goes wrong is unfortunately it is a profits first people second kind of approach it's like we will yeah. deliver this product on time yeah it just yeah it doesn't matter that like johnny's fallen sick or elizabeth is you know going through a marriage breakup yeah. or these kinds of things it's like the product comes first yeah whereas like you said in the public sector it's a little more people focused yeah and yeah well like you said that like I'd spoken about some of like the negatives of the public sector and I probably should articulate better what my thoughts are there. It's, it's just, or it's like that quote that I like, but you know, optimality is a relationship between the strategy and the playing field. Mm. Like there is, there is no optimal place to work or like, you know, sector to work in. And I don't think there is an optimum like type of person as an employee or a leader like hmm. it is a relationship between who or how someone is and the workplace or sector that they're doing it within yeah so to relate that back to you someone who is quite vigilant and proactive staying busy in the workplace you probably do mesh quite well in a you know public sector hmm. you're not yeah, like affected by the slow bureaucratic incentives mm. to the degree that someone who is less vigilant might be. Yeah, don't succumb to them as easily yeah. as the opportunities there. Yeah. And I will just reference those as well because I know this is a, um, like a, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a sticking point, uh, a gripe, a thorn in the side kind of thing for my sister who she works in the, you know, the public sector as well, um, Department of Transport. And, and she was, I was just talking with her and dad the other day and she was saying like, no, it is a, a pretty pervasive myth that you can't get fired mm. in the public sector. And I know you weren't saying that, but like yeah. there are a lot of people who are just like, oh, you're so lucky to get a government job. Like, mm. you know, you won't get fired. You can do fuck all and yeah, yeah, yeah. chill out. And she yeah. was, you know, saying to both of us, she's like, nah, that really pisses me off that idea. Cause like, mm. you know, we've had to fire people like they haven't, they've underperformed and like, you know, yeah, she yeah. goes all guns blazing at her job yeah. to, pro you know, protect herself and, you know, That's perform it. for those around her. Yeah. It's just, again, slightly different environment. Yeah. And that's good for some people. And honestly, it probably brings out pretty bad things in others. Yeah, no, it's a good addition. And again, it just comes back to like the baseline. So for me, it's like, it would be very, very hard to get fired considering my baseline is like, just do the best job you can. But obviously, like, obviously if one takes the piss, you're going to get the repercussions of that. Um, so yeah, that's uh, definitely a good addition to add there. Um, this week I've been reading, yeah, as you know, a couple of books, I think it's called Economics of the User's Guide by Harjun Chang, um, simultaneously with Thomas Sowell's um, Basic Economics, Common Sense Guide to the Economy, I think it's called. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, those have been really, like Harjun Chang's book, as I mentioned, phenomenal for the different perspectives of the economy and studies of economics. Um, I forget who said this, but it was actually someone in your field of, artificial intelligence and computer science it was something like 
the vantage point adds 80 IQ points. Um, I don't know exactly who said that, but yeah, there's some insight in just the idea that the point of view you take just really can 2x, 3x, 10x the amount of information extracted. And so like just finding the right vantage point to look at things can be actually really quite useful with the same amount of just output of labor or work or effort. And so, yeah, that's been really good for that reason, just to <coughs> get a, diff a lot of different perspectives around the schools of economic thought. Because as I sort of mentioned the other week, the dominant school of thought is like neoclassical, which is basically like classical was just really ardent free market ideas um, of like Hayek. Um, who else would have been? Like Thomas Sowell would have been a free market kind of guy. Obviously, Adam Smith. Um, so yeah, that was basically like the classical school of thought. And then, uh, I, I think, I think what happened and obviously I'm still learning through all this was after the world war and after the great depression, Keynes sort of came in around the fifties and then he added the idea that there needed to be government spending that basically like the market may be able to figure out, figure it out in the long run, but in the short run. Like we still need to say like stimulus spend and pump money into the economy to get it going again. And that was, I think, after the depression and around World War II. And so I think now neoclassical is a bit more like, yes, market-based, but also like you still need government intervention at times. <coughs> and so, yeah, basically there's a lot of different schools of economic thought and that book is phenomenal for giving you all those different point of view points of view because like as much as we love Thomas Sowell he's obviously just very much a free market kind of guy and that goes a very long way but it's like the the last mile problem like that final mile is like substantially harder to traverse than like the first 99 kind of thing um yeah thoughts yeah no it, it it sounds to me like it's one of those, or at least how I would frame it and, and think about these problems. Um, you know, someone like Keynes came along and basically pointed to the need for government for finding more global optimums rather than local optimums. So um, in sort of like a you know mathematical sense, mm -hmm. you know, like you've you've drawn some lines on a graph like waving and there's like, there's peaks where like, you know, if you go left or right along the line, you're going down. Like there is, say there's multiple optimums, maximums, whatever, along the, the line. Um, and, you know, to use this term in the sort of loose sense, there are various algorithms which are, like a greedy algorithm, for example, is one that always takes the best option like of the present or like the best alternative of the options prevent presented. Mm. So, for example, if you're dropped at a random point along this line and it basically just says, if you go left, what is your height? If you go right, what is mm. your height? And then it takes the higher of those two. Mm. And then that's fine, but you can get stuck on local peaks mm. where it's like you're not at the highest peak gotcha. on the graph. Yeah. But, you know, if you're dropped at some random point where, in, where you're on like 
the upward slant of the third tallest hill. Yeah, yeah. You just keep going up and then you get to the local local maximum. Yeah. And it goes, oh, if I go left, I go down. If I go right, I go down. So yeah. this is the peak. And that's kind of how I think free markets work. It's like everyone is just, unless like you're someone like Elon Musk mm. or a government, <laughs> they're pretty much comparable at this point. <laughs> um, that's where some of the forethought and longer term planning goes into it, which is one of the benefits of the bureaucracy. Hmm. It's like, like you said, there is less turnover. It is more resilient to these market fluctuations. Hmm. And that's one of the things where it can say, you know what, I don't need to optimize for the, you know, the local maximum and keep taking what will pay off more immediately. Hmm we can change the, the structure of the algorithm and get towards more global peaks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good insight. And yeah, I guess this speaks to like, well, as we mentioned, like tragedy commons type problems where sometimes like individual, like yes, individuals looking out for their own interests brings society to a lot of equilibrium, equilibriums. And basically that's where prices emerge. However, again like there are also detriments to everyone just looking out for themselves and that's what we've referenced and that's what is referenced as tragedy tragedies of the commons um that's where a third party is kind of required to step in um and yes so that and yeah thomas soul's book that's also been good um and i think that's basically all what about you yeah no i think this is this is good uh, like you did mention a few weeks ago that you were going to, or like you were going through a sort of an economics ultra learning period. And I think I referenced like the idea of synoptic reading, just sort of reading multiple books in parallel or tandem just, and I didn't completely concretize like the benefits of that. So maybe just do that now. It, what you're trying to do is develop more and more complex knowledge schemas so, yeah, like, I guess the current model of um, human sort of memory and, like, how we store knowledge is, yeah, in schemas. Like, yeah, we maintain our information in long-term memory in schemas. And one of the benefits of synoptic reading is those sort of more complex schemas develop earlier and give you that more sort of it's cliche but like well-rounded perspective early on Mm. like or rather than just sort of strength you know like by the time you read three books say if you read them linearly and i'm i'm simplifying here but um you read one you read the first book and you develop sort of like a schema that makes sense of that particular book's information. And then you obviously perceive each of the following books through the schema of the first book. Yeah. Like the, the structure of your knowledge or like you perceive things through the structure of your knowledge, which is based on the book you read first. Mm. And that's again, one of the benefits that synoptic kind of reading helps to address is you don't 
uh, solidify any particular schema too early and you progressively just develop quite complex schemas that are yeah well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Like, um, bless you. Oh, that hay fever. Yeah, the hay fever. Have you had the pills yet? Uh, no, I haven't the had the pills, pills yet. <laughs> <laughs> the hay fever pills are the medication. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, so if I'm understanding it correctly, it's just like introducing the more complex ideas early on. Well, you don't really have a great understanding of them, but you build some level of familiarity with them and then that just constantly builds. Yeah, I'd probably uh, like to change that somewhat. It's like not... Go for it, mate. It w- well, like true, yes, but I don't think that's actually the main benefit of it. Mm. It's not that it introduces the complex ideas earlier. It shows you that the ideas are more complex than they appear to be earlier. Nice one. Yeah. So it's, you know, because you could read, like again, Thomas Sowell is phenomenal regarding economics from, you know, my pretty, you know, undereducated standpoint. Mm. But you could definitely read Thomas Sowell and still come away with a warped perception of economics. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So it's, yeah, good to probably read someone like him and like his basic economics. He's probably like most pure to the point fundamentals kind of text on the topic alongside other books just to help address some of those gaps. Exactly. Um, Okay. So I guess I'll just share some of the part one of the, just a couple of the points that I really liked. Um, Didn't get the chance to note them all down. Um, But basically, yeah, the the part one of the book just really emphasizes the idea of scarcity. And we've said it a lot on the pod, but um, it really just brings it home. Um, Yeah, so I'll just read a couple of points. Um, Economics is about the allocation of scarce resources. This is not some abstract concept. This is a fundamental reality of existence. We want more than there will ever be. This is the case under socialism, feudalism, or capitalism. No matter the system scarce resources are going to need to be allocated somehow Um, and i guess coming out of that it's just the idea that the market system has shown to be the best system to allocate the scarce resources and he uses the example of beachfront homes so um, almost everyone would like a beachfront home we we see the price often we see the price of the barrier to having the beachfront home whatever six hundred thousand one million two million we see that as the reason why we can't have the beachfront home but the price is just conveying the reality of the scarcity of beachfront homes no matter what the price were to be for beachfront homes there would always be a scarcity because there's simply just not enough beachfront space uh, per the amount of people to go around so the price of the beachfront home is just relaying the information of that scarcity of the space uh what you gonna say yeah no I, i love this stuff because it's what it's like very rarely is there anything that you can actually just take on face value like you to think clearly about anything i think you need to reframe it and like consistently reframe it and i think that's something thomas Sowell is is excellent at among other sort of quote-unquote first principles thinkers but that is 
that's the genius of soul and I'm just reiterating your points here for the record but yeah we all sort of get stuck arguing what is the best you know political slash economic way of governing you know like oh communism is better than capital capitalism it's just like it has more care for the masses like you know people's welfare is a greater concern but yeah that's actually missing the point and so i think correctly highlights it's like what we need to be concerned with is yeah scarcity and how do people get things and ultimately one system more efficiently and effectively distributes scarce resources than the other. It's like that's really the point that we need to be arguing about. Not what sounds better, not what, you know, we want to believe in, but what actually delivers the results that we care about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that speaks to, again, just his big emphasis on the actual outcomes. As you know, he speaks a lot about intentions versus outcomes, but also the idea of like, abstract ideas versus outcomes and he really highlights that this really matters uh it really affects the way millions and billions of people live the way we think about these issues um take the housing example there is no i I think what he says and i think what also i can tell about the world is that there is no actual scarcity of housing there is a shortage which is not the same thing it's a shortage is a pricing phenomenon a scarcity is a physical reality. So there is no actual scarcity of housing. There's a shortage due to just the way the market operates. So there's a lot of homeless people. There's also a lot of empty dwellings and empty buildings. And there's a lot of space, like especially in Australia, there's so much space and so many empty buildings, so many abandoned warehouses that could just operate as housing, obviously. So yeah, there is no real scarcity of houses. There's just a shortage, which is due to a failure of the system. Yeah, and that's... Man, there's such an important point that... Like, this is one of the things I get frustrated about when people sort of just, like, criticise the system in the abstract. They're like, oh, the system's failing. It's like, well, yeah, like, Hmm. you are pointing to something massively important, like you said, that is resulting in tens of thousands of people being homeless. But it's like, let's not get stuck arguing in the like, oh, I'm kind of anti-government. I'm, you know, I have my political leanings. So, fuck the system. Like, I want to go, like, you know, Davo, off the grid and <laughs> like that, you know, that kind of camp, let's say. Love it. Um, but yeah, it's, unfortunately, I just find them to, or like, that camp of people to be, yeah, criticizing, quote unquote, the system because it does, you know, go against their their political leanings, but it's not actually offering any anything instructive or, yeah, trying to progress this clearly serious issue, which can be solved mm. with clear economic thinking. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It all... A lot of it, not all of it, really comes down to just better ways of thinking about it and better problem solving. Um, and it sort of feeds into effective altruism and our techno-optimist view of the world and just optimism in general. Um, and I guess the beginning of infinity is all about this. It's mm. all about 
just knowledge and solving problems um, is is kind of the way forward. And that's uh, we we really don't know how much we've exploited that yet. And yeah, I think like people like Patrick Collison are really really showing that. And that actually connects to another point he makes about um, scarcity of natural resources. Um, just uh, I think he says something around that. Um, there's scare or like shortages in the market. It's kind of a similar thing to the beachfront homes or the homeless thing. Sorry, uh, it's just due to people say like firms not or the price system not working well enough for them to go and extract those extra resources. So, if the price were if they were incentivized better, they would be able to go and extract further extra natural resources. Um, so like ultimately we don't know how much natural resources there are there obviously is some physical reality of that which we don't know but our understanding of it or what we see as the amount of natural resources at play are largely dependent on the prices and if incentivized people will probably find a way to extract more natural resources Um, yeah obviously I'm not too clear on that whole point yet <clears throat> yeah so like and when you're saying natural resources here for the record you're speaking more around like oil gold copper yeah. those kinds of things not say something like you know the forests and the trees like um yeah, yeah like the kind of things you're talking about is the economics around like you know proposed or like yeah supposed oil shortages or gold shortages or whatever but it's like ultimately again just to reiterate your points they aren't necessarily shortages it's just that you know bhp doesn't want to go and mine for a bunch of oil if it's not going to be sufficiently profitable for them yeah yet you know given advances in technology in time or changes in markets that all of a sudden that shortage probably does disappear Mm. or change yeah and that's just kind of like soul's point it's not just this we speak about shortages as if it's a purely physical phenomenon but it's Mm. socio-economic and technology dependent yeah absolutely um okay so just a couple more the crucial this one's on prices the crucial role of prices is in tying together a vast world of economic um, activities for people scattered too widely to know each other so prices are basically packets of information um, and yet yeah, uh, again like the whole idea around prices is it's just compressing the wants and desires but also the limitations and the information of the whole market and aggregating that into a sim- single bit of information so say for um, suppliers and firms that basically aggregates what people want and what people need um for other people that sort of shows um i guess like how hard it is to make things um or you know technologies or how hard it is to acquire maybe like natural resources so basically prices are from what i understand thus far just packets of information that help connect the world and um, yeah, they bring all that information together into a single point 
I, in an ideal world, obviously. Um, obviously, there's places where the price system and price signals don't work perfectly. Yeah, no, I, I love this line of reasoning again. So, to relate it back to sort of my my side of things, uh, like when you sort like you start learning about statistics and you you know you say you don't know anything really and for the record like I'm still pretty much in that camp um, but you know like and I've I've worked with people who've taken interests in research and it and I'm completely guilty of this in the past as well where sort of like you read a few research papers and you start to understand a little bit about statistics and then you start you make grandstanding and pontificating like much more than what you actually should for example it's like you start criticizing like averages and what you can actually really know about a population of people based on an average Mm. you know like say when you're completely naive you take the the average you know to be too much of gospel it's just like oh this there's some kind of like profound truth here and then once you become you know slightly less than naive you sort of are on that upwards like initial climb on the Dunning-Kruger curve. Like you you don't know how much you don't know and you start dismissing averages and for how little information they actually contain. But again, I think once you start moving past that, you do realise an average is an incredible number when you think about it. Like it is a single number that does describe a large amount of the information contained within a population. Again, it's imperfect. Like it doesn't describe every idiosyncratic detail but some averages or like an average being like mean median or mode depending on what is most applicable in the context an average can be an incredible measure again distilling down possibly thousands of data points to one number like Hmm. yeah i just thought i'd link that in there because that's like that's very similar to what happens with prices like the price of a house Mm. okay that is an abstraction it doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the house Mm. but contained within that is some contribution of information based on how many rooms the house has how many bedrooms it has how many toilets it has the Mm. structure and the layout of the house all of this is encapsulated in the price as well as how many people are competing for that house Mm the location of that house in relation to schools and supermarkets, the long-term projected, you know, socioeconomic standing of the district Mm. that the house is located in. Like all these things are sort of converging on this single point or price. Yeah. And again, it's a distillation, it's a suppression of many details and same thing with an average it's imperfect like you still probably need to go and see the house for yourself you can't just go oh that that house is worth five hundred and forty five thousand dollars that makes it good to buy or bad to buy Mm. no like you still need some kind of valuation there yourself but for a single number it can tell you incredible amounts yeah yeah that's all good um all, all very good stuff and so perhaps the last one i'll mention is um, he has a bit of a bit of a section just around people talking negatively around profits. 
Um, this is no surprise for someone who is a free market kind of guy. Um, but I guess just understanding a little bit about why there are profits and profit motives and why that's not necessarily a bad thing or perhaps why it's necessarily not a bad thing. Um, the, sellings, the seller's feelings, whether greedy or not, tell us nothing about how much a buyer is willing to pay. Um, so that's basically just speaking to uh, like, yeah, again, people. So the term price gouging, which is what people would call, say there's a, uh, a natural disaster and local gas, local, local gas prices or petrol prices or prices for torches or bottles of water. Or if there's say like a pandemic um, and toilet paper prices might go up, which they didn't. Um, that's that's what people would call price gouging, where there's some a hit of scarcity, and then the suppliers or the businesses they put up the prices. And a lot of people, especially a lot of people in the media, would probably look at that and be like, "Oh, that's that's greedy firms and that's greedy suppliers trying to just maximize profits in these bad times." But I guess probably more realistically, again, it's just conveying the reality of the scarcity um and I, I think it's interesting with regards to the pandemic because like like i said they didn't price gouge no one no from, at least from what i can tell none of supermarkets or anything like that put up their prices for toilet paper they just put in uh, uh buying limits i suppose one one pack per person or whatever um and the effect of that was you see heaps of people lining up for toilet paper um, and I, I just don't know that it's necessarily like whether that was necessarily a better option than just say them putting up the price and just allowing the price to allocate the resources so because there was a scarcity the people competing for the amount of demand being competed for so the people buying or competing for that one good would have driven up the price and uh, would have allocated accordingly. Um, yeah, so I, I just don't know that that would have been a bad thing. But obviously, like Coles, Woolworths, they would have got absolutely rained for that. Rained? Reamed? Yeah, I'm not sure. I was thinking lambasted. They would have got lambasted. Bastard for that. Bomb, bombasted or lambasted? I think it's lambasted. Yeah. Um, yeah, they would have got absolutely torn out by the media um, if they had have done that. Yeah, but, yeah. It, it hints at something that obviously I'm quite interested in, um, and I know you're sort of you are too. Like the the reason that you know you take interest in economics, or I take interest in say rationality more generally, is that there are no perfect solutions. Yeah. Like people, people are so critical of, at least I think, you know some you know, uh, supporters of rationality because they're like, oh, you want to come to this like perfect conclusion for everything and that's impossible. It's like, no, the idea of rationality is that all solutions are imperfect, but like more, some are more imperfect than others and it's yeah. worthwhile really trying to move away from those. Yeah. Like don't think about it as maximizing good. Think about it as minimizing bad. Yeah, love it. And the point I'm getting at here is like, that simple problem of now there's basically a toilet paper bubble, like people are just getting crazy 
in their valuation of toilet paper. Mm. Like, how do we stop that? And you think, well, you know, you put limits on things and this is sort of like a corollary to like tariffs in Mm. trade Mm. between nations, for example. But like you go, okay, you can't walk out of Coles with more than three packets of toilet paper. But it's like whack-a-mole, like where you, you know, you put your hand down on one and some other problem pops up somewhere else. So you start getting like families going into Coles and then splitting up and going, okay, you know, like Lyndon, you walk out with three packets of Mm. toilet paper. Mum walks out with three packets of toilet paper. Ed walks out with three packets of toilet paper. Yeah. So that is an imperfect solution. And you go, okay, so, well, we can't address it with restrictions or limitations. We'll address it with price. Mm. So now the price of toilet paper goes up two, three, four times, whatever. And then that price is out maybe seniors or other things. Yeah, poor people. Poor people. And that, again, that's not, not to say one's better than the other because then you can address, you can address an imperfect solution with more imperfect solutions. You can go, okay, here's some discounts for those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. Hmm. But the main point I'm getting at here is there is no perfect solution. So one, keep that in mind that like whatever you are proposing is probably less idealized than what you realize, less ideal than what you realize. And two, unless you're pointing to very specific things and offering some kind of operational solution, any criticism of an opposing party is very just like superficial. Hmm. Going like, oh, there's something wrong with your policy. Cool. There's something wrong with every policy. Like, tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The the solutions v. trade-offs is obviously a common thread there. Um very very important one to consider um do we quote soul on that i mean yeah i guess so we've done it many a time (laughs) but yeah just like there is yeah a very classic kind of soul quote and just because we're yeah we're roundabouts the area and have been referencing um he he just responds to um some basic like criticism in one of his interviews on I think it's firing firing line um, with William Buckley. Um, just, yeah, he's debating this lady and she's kind of like, well, the people demand solutions and he sort of just sits there and he's like, well, there are no solutions, mm. only trade-offs. It's like we can have a, you know, a civil conversation about which trade-offs we think are willing to make, but like don't sit here and go, you're evil or that person's bad or this company's corrupt. Mm. Like just, yeah, need to talk about trade-offs and anything else is really just finger-wagging or pointing. Yeah, and also, um, like another thing is big on is just, as, as we've mentioned before, incremental versus categorical. And, uh, and like that's the whole idea around econ as well. It's just like thinking at the margin. It's like a lot of the time we're having conversations and discussions it's around like what that person on the border is or like what's the next, what's the cost or benefit of the next thing or taking away that, that next thing. Like rarely is it going to be categorical shifts. Um, so yeah, that, 
other really good, super important parts. But we'll we'll keep updating on some economic insights as I go further into this journey. Another thing we're going to do this episode is pay some homage to a fallen, a fallen genius. Yeah. So I referenced in my section on um, basically listing all the books <laughs> that I've re- read. <laughs> um, that wasn't all of them, obviously, but yeah, I couldn't couldn't distill my favorite books down to just a few. But I, I really do think this is one of my, my absolute favorite ones, uh, Letters to a Young Contrarian. So what we're speaking about here is Christopher Hitchens, who, yeah, 10, 10 years uh, since he's passed and has just been a, a very influential and inspiring force on my own development. And I'm sure probably like on yours as well. Um, and even not let's say like even if not directly on Josh's though I know he has influenced mm. you directly in some way as well the fact that I feel probably very influenced by mm. some of Hitchens writings and if I've influenced you mm. then it is yeah he's still having that indirect effect mm. um, so yeah I was just you know reading through the first few chapters of Letters to a Young Contrarian again this morning and again, just it's always like a breath of fresh air when you read it. Uh, it's very simple, like extremely poetic, but does just really get to uh, like the crux of what he was about, I think at least. Yeah. So yeah, do you want to say anything on that or do you want me to um, keep going? No, yeah, I would just say that if you haven't paid attention to Hitch's work, and to be honest, like you said, I haven't read too much of his work. Um, I've enjoyed watching a lot of his videos. Um, just a very, very entertaining person to watch um, and very succinct, very articulate, very good with his words and just a clear thinker. And like something that um, Sam Harris said about him is just like imagining how good he would be today yeah, and like what that would look like. <laughs> like I, I just can't imagine how, that, how good that would be to watch. It. I don't know if I'm you know, giving the man too much credit here, but I don't think we'd be in this position if someone like Hitch was still operating. It's like the world would be different. And he was such a, uh, you know, like checks and balance kind of effect on a lot of journalistic integrity and rigor. Hmm. Like he was an absolute sort of like, force and you know like if if you were falling short of like moral standards or like the ethics that journalists or just like public intellectuals let's say like should hold themselves to like he would go you and go you hard Mm. um and yeah i do just think like part of part of why we are where we are is because of a lack of someone like him yeah um, so I might read some some of my favorite quotes from this, but like maybe to start with, I'd probably like to read something from the preface, which I really do think hints at um, just how unfairly maligned he is, for example. So to, to start with, like he was an extremely outspoken atheist. Um, that's probably like one of his most prominent features, you know, spoke spoke out against the church and just like organized religion sort of in general. Um, so this is from the, the preface, but like you will, you will hear my, many other um, criticisms of him. 
and he sort of addresses that here. So, uh, when asked the, the question, how do I respond when I see myself or my efforts abused or misinterpreted in the public prints? The brief answer is that I have become inured without becoming indifferent. I attack and criticize people myself. I have no, re- no right to expect lenience in return. And I don't believe those authors who say they don't care about reviews or notices. However, it does not tire me to read, oh sorry, however, it does tire me to read time and time again reviews and notices that are based on clippings from early reviews and notices. Thus, there's always an early paragraph usually written in a standard form of borrowed words that says, quote, Hitchens, whose previous targets have included Mother Teresa and Princess Diana, as well as Bill Clinton, now turns two, end quote. Of course, As you guessed, this is dispiriting. For one thing, it bores me to see my supposed profession reduced to recycling. Nobody ever even has the originality to say, quote, Hitchens, who criticised Mother Teresa for a warm endorsement of the Duvalier regime in Haiti. (laughs) This is surreptitious way. This is the surreptitious way in which dissenting views are marginalised or patronised to death. However, it wasn't self-pity that prompted me to write. Let me tell you what happened. Okay, sorry, I've gone past. Um, Yeah, what was relevant. Uh, But basically the point I'm getting at is like, he he criticised for good reason. Hmm. Like, yes, he took shot at like Mother Teresa (laughs) and Princess Diana, some like cultish figures, but... Yeah, because the masses weren't seeing yeah. these people clearly, like they they become absorbed by some bubble around this person, hmm. and no matter how charismatic someone is, if they are supporting things that are, you know, doing harm or whatever, he took, yeah, took problem with that and went for them, and I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, definitely just that idea that I've come back to a lot of just the division of labour of ideas and how people, you know, he's obviously on the extreme end of like looking for, say like the most altruistic individual maybe on the surface or like in the the zeitgeist, um, but really just being honest about like taking away the halo effect and uh, being, being... I guess, brave enough to criticize where criticism is warranted. Yeah. I, I love him for the sort of, he almost takes this view that you can't, you can't get away without offending anyone. Like you, whatever you do, you say, however you act, you will offend someone. And I don't think this was his exact tact, but he basically goes, sort of with the the MO of, well, I'm going to offend the most, you know, privileged and pretentious people then. Hmm. Like, I'm going to take shot at those who think they're above being criticised. Yeah. Like, by speaking up for, for the most part, marginalised groups. Yeah, it really is um, just like ultimate journalistic integrity, but also like teleology or the telos of uh, fucking journalism is to... Yeah, really, just like speak out against the powers that be kind of thing. I might keep reading some more. Yeah, um, and again, please pardon my 
imperfect ability to to relay <laughs> Hitch's extremely poetic words. Like he is he is a master with the pen. Shoot um, the messenger in this case. Yeah, <laughs> should definitely shoot the messenger. So there's another passage. Um, just speaking to the point of like. So again, the book is Letters to a Young Contrarian and it is just about, you know, why it's worthwhile being contrarian or an mm. oppositionist and he sort of explores those words and like, but the repercussions of that and this is more on the repercussions for the individual. However, let us not repine. It's too much to expect to live in an age that is actually propitious. I practiced that in my head before I started. What does that <laughs> for mean? Descent. Uh, like... Um, accepting, welcoming, um, right. propitious. Anyway, I'll go on. Um, and most people, most of the time, prefer to seek approval or security. Nor should this surprise us, and nor, incidentally, are those desires contempt- contemptible in themselves. Nonetheless, there are, in all periods, people who feel themselves in some fashion to be a part. And it is not too much to say that humanity is very much in debt to such people, whether it chooses to acknowledge the debt or not. Don't expect to be thanked, by the way. The life of the oppositionist is supposed to be difficult. Hmm. So you're just really speaking to the point that it it is contrarianism that drives Hmm. society forward. And you can't expect your contrarian, like... Uh, aspects or bents to be welcomed yeah like most people will you know seek to be a part of the herd sort of you know mostly by definition and he's saying hey that's fine but like elsewhere in this sort of chapter he's like i believe if you're reading this book you are someone who that is just like that's a part of you like you couldn't be anything Mm. but contrarian and now just let me offer some advice for how you might best want to go about that yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, it's part and parcel of the contrarian. So, would you think that, like, so that point around contrarians being the drivers of society, somewhat the drivers, um, yeah, no, because I guess, like, we've talked about contrarianism a decent bit, um, how do, how do you think about how effective that is and, like, to what level the contrarianism is uh, effective in driving society forward? Yeah, so I think maybe the like the cop out answer is like I think that's why you've got to read a book or something like this. Like I don't think any rebuttal or defense of contrarianism, say on my behalf, can really capture the way that Hitchens thinks about it. Mm. And like because, yeah, you can just be contrarian for, let's say, contrarian's sake or what, whatever that actually means. Like, whether it's, like, a, a social signal or, like, a status signal or, a, mm. you know, just this, you want to be different. But there's something more substantial about the way he speaks about it. And it, it really is tied to a moral kind of base, I think, where... You know, for example, another passage that I've highlighted, and this one's much shorter. um, As is so often the case, the determination of one individual was enough to dishearten those whose courage was only mob-derived. Was only what? Whose whose courage 
was only mob derived. Mob derived. Yeah. So it's like he speaks kind of like the courage is really at the individual level and it's mm. like that sole individual speaking up for what they believe is right mm. can be enough at times to completely fracture groups and masses of people who seem to possess so much courage, mm. but their courage, again, only being mob-derived. Yeah. Like, you know, Hitchens being, like, a massive supporter of someone like Orwell. Mm. It's like, yeah, the, the Soviet Union and many of the totalitarian regimes seemed really powerful, scary, you know, quote-unquote courageous operations, but the courage was really on Orwell's level. Yeah. Whereas, like, no, I'm going to speak up for the you know, thousands of people who are being massacred and suppressed and harmed by this. Yeah. And, yeah, he was enough to start being a, a real thorn in the side to start, like, tearing down some of those false views. Yeah, I really think, um, as you said before, I really think today's world would probably be, sub- I don't know if substantial is putting it too strongly, but would be... Um, quite different due to Hitch's effects because, again, like, there doesn't necessarily... I don't know. We probably don't pay that much attention to contemporary, like, political speakers and journalists, I, I guess, but there really doesn't seem to be that type. I mean, like, you would say, like, Peterson is probably a little bit more just, like, academic and, like, pragmatic in that way and he doesn't really go out of his way enough to, like just speak out about things that he sees that are wrong in the political sphere. Um, I guess it's kind of all around his academic side of things and he's very much more, maybe this is a way to put it, he's very much more just like positive focused, I would say, whereas perhaps Hitch is like looking at all the detriments of society and like really shining a light on them. And like you would say that Sam Harris is doing that, but again, he's nowhere near as strong um, as strong with his words and um, maybe just um, what's the word it's like ardent um, polarizing but polarizing in a good way like just shaking things up essentially yeah there's an awesome quote um, give me some time to find it um, I'll keep going with some others though I think this maybe like hints at one of the benefits of his kind of ideas of contrarianism, um, like you were sort of asking about before. So I'll read it. It's pretty simple, but, um, quote, to be, to be in opposition is not to be a nihilist and there is no decent or charted way of making a living at it. It is something you are and not something you do. And I think what that really captures is, like I was saying before, it's like you are, it's like just something that you feel and something you do. And it, because it's that, it's not something that where you necessarily like chase incentives or try to make mm. a profession out of it. Like the, one of the things that made him so powerful is basically no one could buy him or no one could silence or shape his views. Mm. He just, yeah, he said it how it was, like whether it be Henry Kissinger, Mother Teresa, Princess Diana, like, yeah. And I think that almost inoculation against incentives is one of the things that makes people like this uh, beneficial for society. 
Hmm. Again, there's probably, you know, less productive versions of this without a doubt, but I still think it's, it's useful that he's fostering those ideas. Yep. Agreed. I'm going to fill some air while I find some more. Yeah, absolutely. So, on a maybe slightly different tangent, um, just a quick air filler. (laughs) Um, some of those interesting people we pay attention to now with regards to the humanities aren't operating in humanities departments, which is like this interesting paradox where I guess it would be fair to say that people in the humanities departments in tertiary education really should be like the, I don't know, the gold standard of uh, what's going on in their field and advising advising about their field and um, hopefully guiding society in some productive manner in their specific domain. But yeah, again, it just seems to be the case that that just, that just really isn't the case. Like a lot of the people, and there's probably some sort of selection bias situation going on here, but I guess from my point of view, a lot of the people that I pay attention to with respect to their thoughts on society aren't like operating in humanities departments where you would typically think that they should be, which I don't know what one one wants to take out of that. Um, maybe just, yeah, whatever's going on in universities isn't the optimal place for the, the earth shakers or earth movers or whatever to be attracted to. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting thought nonetheless. No, I think you're right. It is a good one. So to keep going down, let's say the the benefits of contrarianism because of how it maps onto you know debate, dialectics, you know dispute, argumentation, that kind of thing. Um, so to quote Hitchens again, who's sort of now just going to reference a few names who who've carried this torch in previous generations. From this caution, I pass to an observation of the late Sir Karl Popper, who could himself be a tyrant in argument, but who nonetheless recognised that argument was valuable, indeed essential for its own sake. It is very, it is very seldom, as he noticed, that in debate any one of two evenly matched antagonists will succeed in actually convincing or converting the other. But it is equally seldom that in a properly conducted argument either either antagonist will end up holding exactly the same position as that which he began. Concessions, refinements and adjustments will occur and each initial position will have undergone modification even if it remains ostensibly the same. Not even the most apparently glacial system is immune to this rule. And I think just again reiterating the point of like you can't expect categorical changes, but the incremental changes that arise from argument and debate are still worthwhile. And even the most robust and stubborn systems are, you know, susceptible to them. Mm. And he goes on further. It is striking how often the masters in this art have repeated each other's discoveries. George Orwell said that the prime responsibility lay in being able to tell people what they did not wish to hear. John Stuart Mill, who by a nice chance was Bertrand Russell's godfather, said that even if all were agreed on an essential proposition, 
it would be essential to give an ear to the one person who did not, lest people forget how to justify their original agreement. Karl Marx, when asked to give his favourite epigram, offered, Everything must be doubted. A pity that so many of his followers forgot the pith of this saying. And yeah, he just goes on further. Just reiterating, reiterating that important point. Um, and yeah, one of the other things that I liked um, was in referencing one of his friends who, um, Dr. Israel Shahak, who was, um, yeah, actually uh, living in, in Israel and is part of the Israeli League for Human and Civil Rights um, in correspondence with Hitchens. Hitch was sort of asking about like the environment over there. And this guy was saying there are some encouraging signs of polarization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really cool and hints at the kind of ideas that someone like Hitch and myself, I think are important. Like mm. we speak about political polarization currently, mm. but the, let's say party polarization is a product of a lack of, intra-party inter-party polarization Hmm. there is not enough disagreement within the conservative camp or Hmm. the progressive camp and that is meaning that they are so far apart Hmm. if there is more debate within camps there would be less debate across camps yeah yeah that's really good like i think um i think ezra klein and um julie galef were speaking a bit about types of polarization and like how how much of a problem actually is polarization and i think if i'm not misremembering this one of the points that they one of the points of conclusion that they came to was that um, polarization is in itself isn't necessarily bad it's just like the type of polarization that has occurred in the last um i'm not sure what time frame exactly they put on it let's just say these days the type of polarization that is um about isn't the type of polarization that we want. Like, as you're sort of alluding to, I suppose, and as um, Hitch embodied was like, polarization is perhaps like a necessity. Um, it's just like the right amount, the right type and the right amount of polarization. It's like productive polarization is probably where we want to be. Um, yeah, and like argument as well. Like, that was definitely definitely something to be bullish on remember that book i read on argument by ian leslie was also quite instructive on this yeah but yeah like you make the good point just around like the, the lip service that people give to like oh we're so polarized and like that's what ezra klein's book is called why we polarize but i don't think his conclusion if i'm understanding and i haven't read it but just from hearing hearing him speak about it is i don't think the conclusion is that polarization is bad and we ought to get rid of it um, I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah, agreed. Any um, anything that you're bullish or bearish on this week, or any adult activities? Mm. Uh, this week I had my cousin Finn come and stay with me, which is quite cool. He Finn's just finished year nine. Um, he has been marked as a gifted student. Um. Yeah, maybe not to embarrass him or for the record, like, fuck, does that even matter? Um, nah, not to de- not to devalue or discredit that, but, like, he has obviously been recognised as a, as a promising child, but, you know, so potential... Poten- <laughs> Sorry. So it skips a generation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 
Um, you know, potential is really not nothing but currently unrealized talent. Mm. So, or whatever that that sort of saying is. So it's like, yeah, it's nothing to be marked as, you know, a child with potential yet until you do something with it. Um, but yeah, Finn's great. I really like him. He's very thoughtful. I uh, basically spent the entire time reading. Um, so it was kind of fun just to, like let him be in his own space and just to, yeah, have someone around the house and look after him and, and just to realize that like that's a place where I'm at in my life. Like I remember as a young kid, like yeah. going and staying with family, friends. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah. And now I'm You're that. You know, hosting. Did you show him a good time? Give him a beer? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, from all reports... Finn is exactly like how I was mm. as a kid. Um, <laughs> like as a, as a kind of like funny, it's like might not mean that much in the story, but I got up in the morning and Finn's eating breakfast. We're both just eating the same breakfast, like super boring kid. I was like, oh, do you want to go to like the shops and get like Cocoa Pops, do all those kind of fun things? And <laughs> it was like, oh, no, what, what have you got? And I was like, I've literally got berries, yogurt and all brand because that's what I eat for breakfast. Yeah. He's like, that's fine. And we sit there eating that. And he's just sniffed like every three seconds for like three minutes straight. And I was like, Finn, do you need to blow your nose? And he was like, oh, yeah, I guess I, guess I probably should. <laughs> just hadn't put like any thought into it. I was like, maybe you should blow your nose. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I probably yeah, should. Yeah, 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 no, good one. Just deep work into the into the breakfast. Just <laughs> tunnel vision. Sitting there, like eating the breakfast, not just not pondering yeah, anything. Yeah. Sort of in the yeah, in the practical it's sense. Going to be a good coder, that's for sure. But sounds it. Is he going down that path? Uh, no, he's honestly probably more like close to your path. He's um he's just picked his subject for my year path? ten. <laughs> <laughs> so all over the place. No, nah, he's just picked his subjects for year ten, and he's much more leaning towards um politics, philosophy, economics. Mm, cool. Uh, that way of thinking. He's keeping like some math and science in there, but yeah, going probably down that that path. He has a massive interest in like communism and mm. totalitarian like the, the 20th century probably mm. he's really obsessed with a lot of those ideas um that's so cool. yeah a smart kid and i really enjoy spending time with it's him crazy thinking of like the kids like that or like cohen like he's always like yeah i started reading hayek High, High when i was 13 <laughs> yeah like I'm finn's like, reading the moral landscape dude, like, <laughs> dude when i was 13 i was meeting girls at subway uh, i was reading specky mcgee <laughs> Um, but yeah, it'd be very cool just to see that. Yeah, that's one thing I guess we can start to appreciate in this phase of our lives. It's just like seeing those. And I don't know if I have any people like that in my life, to be honest, like young cousins or younger siblings or anything like that. But um, just to see those trajectories from the other side will be cool to watch. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what we were kind of talking about last night. Like, I am... Tr- like certainly not perfect or great at it even, but like trying to play somewhat of an active role in mm. helping and mentoring, mentoring Finn a little yeah. bit. Just you know, like I had a great childhood for the record. Like I would never say anything otherwise. I think my parents did phenomenally, but I just didn't have people around me mm. for the most part who read just like anything other than maybe like a little bit of fiction yeah. or were like exposing me to many ideas. 
Yeah. It was sort of like, yeah, you can read your book for a bit, but then like make sure you get outside and get dirty and play, you know, run your brother around so he sleeps and mm. that kind of stuff. Whereas, yeah, a single, a single role model can go a long way. And I had lots mm. of good role models, but mm. just probably not in an intellectual sense is yeah. what I meant. Yeah, yeah. I'll be, I guess I'd be also interested to see like if the, if he say like sticks to the path. Cause yeah, again, like what we were interested in when we were at that age is just worlds apart from the avenues that we're taking now. Yeah, I probably don't see like, let's say, you know, Finn becoming some like politics or like, political or like economics prodigy like I, I don't think it's one of those things but i think in general what he's doing is like building a good foundation of just mm. deep thought and interest about the world mm. you know, like like i was saying to you last night he's now reading the way of kings um mm. like i just read recently and he's sort of like <laughs> he also had um, nietzsche's beyond good and evil with him <laughs> but like he, he is just he's really trying to like yeah i love that open up like his worldview, but not just through like Nietzsche would obviously be classic sort of philosophical reading, but he's also reading fantasy, science fiction mm. and other, other books to address some gaps. Mm. It's just, yeah, it's cool. Um, I'm proud of him. Um, I look forward to watching, watching him grow up. Yeah. That's very exciting. Um, what about you? Nothing really. I don't think to be honest. Bullish on today. Yeah. Bullish on today. <clears throat> did maybe have something there mm. the role of play in life what sort of play uh, like i remember doing a i don't know if it was a subject or at least an assignment on play at uni mm. um it was i can't remember what class it was in but basically like play was defined as something that is exploratory and done for its own sake and yeah i remember that i'm not sure if i've been reflecting on that a little bit more recently but i remember that really being drilled into me at the time and something that i valued and maybe have forgotten somewhat but yeah just just the benefit from at least a a sensory motor standpoint for kids like they get so much out of playing playing with both toys and physical play like climbing you know the playground or playing chasey like there is there's so much exploration and like information obtained Mm. obtained from that and i think yeah I, i we do miss out on that a lot as adults i think yeah just play in in a very general sense of the word whether it be physical emotional sexual Mm. yeah just yeah lifting those perceived boundaries somewhat and just exploring a bit more yeah again in the context of a relatively safe environment yeah i think that's where sorry i'm getting on my hobby horse bit here but like that should be the place for safe spaces yeah for that kind of play and exploration not hiding from the quote-unquote real world yeah no i couldn't agree more as like dave as advice said we could probably do with a little bit more taking things less seriously 
considering our baselines. But obviously, there's a lot of us out there could, that could do with <laughs> taking things slightly more seriously. So, yeah, it comes back to our original baselines. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, we got, we're about to go play Truth or Dare with our um, urology and, <laughs> and our friends. So, no, thank you, everyone, for listening. We largely appreciate it. And uh, happy happy New Year, I guess this will be. Yeah, just like happy holidays, whatever, yeah, wherever yeah. you're at. Um, it really is a special time of year, whether you get into the sort of, you know, capitalistic consumerism of Christmas. But Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, irrespective of it, I think they're like ride the wave of positivity that's going around at the moment. Like there's a lot of people yeah. who take a bit of pride in being a Grinch. And like whether you get into Christmas or not, like I think yeah. it's worthwhile at least trying to capitalize on seeing your family happy, making them happy, wishing mm. friends well, and just the general spirit of this time of year. Because honestly, we'll probably all be depressed again in winter and that kind of sucks. So <laughs> make the most of it. Shout out to Sads. Yeah. Nah, thanks. This has been fun. Nice. All right. Done. And that's all we have for today. We thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love it if you could leave a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. If you have any thoughts, you can send an email to conduit.aus at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll speak with you next week.